RTE Podcasts present the RTE Players complete production of Ulysses from 1982. Episode 6, Hades. 11am, 16th of June 1904, Prospect Cemetery, Glasnevin. Martin Cunningham first poked his silk-hatted head into the creaking carriage and, entering deftly, seated himself. Mr Power stepped in after him, curving his height with care. Come on, Simon. After you, Mr Bloom said. Mr Dedalus covered himself quickly and got in, saying, Yes, yes. Are we all here now? Martin Cunningham asked. Come along, Bloom. Mr Bloom entered and sat in the vacant place. He pulled the door to after him and slammed it tight, till it shut tight. He passed an arm through the arm strap and looked seriously from the open carriage window at the lowered blinds of the avenue. One dragged aside, an old woman peeping, nose white flattened against the pane. Thanking her stars, she was passed over. Extraordinary the interest they take in a corpse. Glad to see us go, we give them such trouble coming. Job seems to suit them. Hugger-mugger in corners, slop about in slipper-slappers for fear he'd wake, then getting it ready, laying it out. Molly and Mrs. Fleming making the bed. Pull it more to your side. Our winding sheet. Never know who will touch you, dead. Wash and shampoo. I believe they clip the nails and the hair. Keep a bit in an envelope. Grow all the same after. Unclean job. All waited. Nothing was said. Stowing in the reeds, probably. I'm sitting on something hard. Ah, that's soap in my hip pocket. Better shift it out of that. Wait for an opportunity. All waited. Then wheels were heard from the front, turning. Then nearer. Then horses' hoofs. A jolt. The carriage began to move, creaking and swaying. Other hoofs and creaking wheels started behind. The blinds of the avenue passed, and number nine with its creped knocker. Door ajar. At walking pace. They waited still, their knees jogging, till they had turned and were passing along the tram tracks. Tritonville Road. Quicker. The wheels rattled, rolling over the cobble causeway, and the crazy glasses shook, rattling in the door frames. What way is he taking us? Mr. Power asked through both windows. Irish Town. Martin Cunningham said. Rings and Brunswick Street. Mr. Dedalus nodded, looking out. That's a fine old custom. I am glad to see it has not died out. All watched a while through their windows, caps and hats lifted by passers. Respect. The carriage swerved from the tram track to the smoother road past Watery Lane. Mr. Bloom at Gay saw a lithe young man clad in mourning, a wide hat. There's a friend of yours gone by, Dedalus. Who is that? Your son and heir. Where is he? Mr. Dedalus said, stretching over across. The carriage passing the open drains and mounds of ripped-up roadway before the tenement houses lurched round the corner and, swerving back to the tram track, rolled on noisily with chattering wheels. Mr. Dedalus fell back, saying, Was that mulligan cad with him? His feeder psychiatrist? No, he was alone. Down with his Aunt Sally, I suppose. The Goulding faction, the drunken little Costraw and Chrissy, Papa's little lump of dung, the wise child that knows her own father. Mr. Bloom smiled joylessly on Rings End Road. Wallace Brothers, the bottle works. Dodder Bridge. Richie Goulding and the legal bag. Goulding, Collis and Ward, he calls the firm. His jokes are getting a bit damp. 
Great card he was, waltzing in Stamer Street with Ignatius Gallagher on a Sunday morning, the landlady's two hats pinned on his head, out on the rampage all night, beginning to tell on him now. That backache of his, I fear, wife ironing his back. Thinks he'll cure it with pills. All breadcrumbs they are. About 600% profit. He's in with a low-down crowd. Mr. Dedalus snarled. Well, that mulligan is a contaminated, bloody, double-dyed ruffian by all accounts. His name stinks all over Dublin. But with the help of God and his blessed mother, I'll make it my business to write a letter one of those days to his mother or his aunt, or whatever she is that will open her eye as wide as a gate. I'll tickle his catastrophe, believe you me. He cried above the clatter of the wheels. I won't have her bastard of a nephew ruin my son, a counter-jumper son, selling tapes in my cousin Peter Paul McSweeney's not likely. He ceased. Mr. Bloom glanced from his angry moustache to Mr. Power's mild face and Martin Cunningham's eyes and beard, gravely shaking. Noisy, self-willed man, full of his son. He's right. Something to hand on. If little Rudy had lived, see him grow up, hear his voice in the house, walking beside Molly in a neat and suit. My son, me in his eyes. Strange feeling it would be. From me. Just a chance. Must have been that morning in Raymond Terrace she was at the window, watching the two dogs at it by the wall of the cease to do evil, and the sergeant grinning up. She had that cream gown on with the rip she never stitched. Give us a touch, Paul. Dear God, I'm dying for it. How life begins. Got big then, had to refuse the Greystones concert. My son inside her. I could have helped him on in life. I could make him independent, learn German too. Are we late? Mr. Powell asked. Ten minutes, Martin Cunningham said, looking at his watch. Molly. Millie, same thing, watered down. Her tomboy oats. Oh, jumping Jupiter. Ye gods and little fishes. Still, she's a dear girl. Soon be a woman. Mullingar. Dearest Papley. Young student. Yes, yes, a woman too. Life, life. The carriage heeled over and back, their four trunks swaying. Corny might have given us a more commodious yoke, Mr. Power said. He might, Mr. Dedalus said. If he hadn't that squint troubling him, do you follow me? He closed his left eye. Martin Cunningham began to brush away crust crumbs from under his thighs. What is this in the name of God? Crumbs? Someone seems to have been making a picnic party here lately, Mr. Power said. All raised their thighs, eyed with disfavour the mildewed, buttonless leather of the seats. Mr. Dedalus, twisting his nose, frowned downward and said, Unless I'm greatly mistaken, what do you think, Martin? Well, it struck me too, Martin Cunningham said. Mr. Bloom set his thigh down. Glad I took that bath. I feel my feet quite clean. But I wish Mrs. Fleming had done these socks better. Mr. Dedalus sighed resignedly. After all, it's the most natural thing in the world. Did Tom Kernan turn up? Martin Cunningham asked, twirling the peak of his beard gently. Yes, he's behind there with Ned Lambert and Hines. And Corny Kelleher himself. At the cemetery. I met McCoy this morning. He said he'd try to come. The carriage halted short. What's wrong? We're stopped. Where are we? Mr. Bloom put his head out of the window. The Grand Canal. He said. Gasworks. Whooping cough, they say it cures. Good job Millie never got it. Poor children doubles them up, black and blue in convulsions. Shame, really. 
got off lightly with illness compared. Only measles. Flaxseed tea. Scarlatina influenza epidemics. Canvassing for death. Don't miss this chance. Dog's home over there. Poor old Athos. Be good to Athos, Leopold, is my last wish. Thy will be done. We obey them in the grave. A dying scrawl. He took it to heart, pined away. Quiet brute. Old men's dogs usually are. A raindrop spat on his hat. He drew back and saw an instant of shower spray dots over the grey flags. Apart. Curious. Like through a colander. I thought it would... My boots were creaking, I remember now. The weather is changing. A pity it did not keep up fine. Wanted for the country. There's the sun again coming out. Mr Dedalus, peering through his glasses towards the veiled sun, hurled a mute curse at the sky. It's as uncertain as a child's bottom. We're off again. The carriage turned again its stiff wheels, and our trunks swayed gently. Martin Cunningham twirled more quickly the peak of his beard. Tom Kernan was immense last night, and Paddy Leonard taking him off to his face. Oh, draw him out, Martin, Mr Power said eagerly. Wait till you hear him, Simon. On Ben Dollard singing of the crappy boy. Immense, Martin Cunningham said pompously. His singing of that simple ballad, Martin, is the most trenchant rendering I ever heard in the whole course of my experience. Trenchant? <laughs> He's dead nuts on that. And the retrospective arrangement. Did you read Dan Dawson's speech? Martin Cunningham asked. I did nothing. Where is it? In the paper this morning. Mr Bloom took the paper from his inside pocket. That book I must change for her. No, no. Later on, please. Mr Bloom's glance travelled down the edge of the paper, scanning the deaths. Callan Coleman, Dignam. Fawcett, Lowry, Norman, Peake. What Peake is that? It's the chap was in Crosby and Alain's. No. Sexton Urbright. Inked characters, fast fading on the frayed, breaking paper. Thanks to the little flower, sadly missed. To the inexpressible grief of his aged 88 after a long and tedious illness. Months mind, Quinlan, on whose soul sweet Jesus have mercy. It is now a month since dear Henry fled to his home above in the sky while his family weeps and mourns his loss, hoping some day to meet him on high. I tore up that envelope. Yes. Where did I put our letter after I read it in the bath? He patted his waistcoat pocket. There, all right. Dear Henry fled. Before my patients are exhausted. National School, Meads Yard. The Hazard... Only two there now, nodding, full as a tick. Too much bone in their skulls. The other trotting round with the fair. An hour ago I was passing there. The Jarvies raised their hats. The pointsman's back straightened itself upright suddenly against the tramway standard by Mr Bloom's window. Couldn't they invent something automatic so that the wheel itself, much handier? Well, but that fellow would lose his job then. Well, but then another fellow would get a job making the new invention. Ancient concert rooms. Nothing on there. A man in a buff suit with a crepe armlet. Not much grief there. Quarter morning. People in law, perhaps. They went past the bleak pulpit of St Mark's, under the railway bridge, past the Queen's Theatre, in silence. Hoardings. Eugene Stratton. Mrs Bandman Palmer. Could I go to see Leah tonight, I wonder? I said I... 
or the Lily of Killarney. Elster Grimes Opera Company, big powerful change. Wet, bright bills for next week. Fun on the Bristol. Martin Cunningham could work a pass for the gaiety. Have to stand a drink or two, as broad as it's long. He's coming in the afternoon. Her songs. Plastos. Sir Philip Crampton's memorial fountain bust. Who was he? How do you do? Martin Cunningham said, raising his palm to his brow and salute. He doesn't see us. Yes, he does. How do you do? Who? Blaze is boiling. There he is, airing his quiff. Just that moment, I was thinking. Mr Dedalus bent across to salute. From the door of the red bank, the white disc of a straw hat flashed reply. Past. Mr Bloom reviewed the nails of his left hand, then those of his right hand. The nails, yes. Is there anything more in him that they... She sees. Fascination. Worst man in Dublin. That keeps him alive. They sometimes feel what a person is. Instinct. But a type like that. My nails, I'm just looking at them. Well paired. And after, thinking alone. Body getting a bit softy. I would notice that from remembering. What causes that, I suppose, the skin can't contract quickly enough when the flesh falls off. But the shape is there. The shape is there still. Shoulders, hips, plump. Night of the dance dressing. Shift stuck between the cheeks behind. He clasped his hands between his knees and, satisfied, sent his vacant glance over their faces. Mr Parr asked... How is the concert tour getting on, Bloom? Oh, very well. I hear great accounts of it. It's a good idea, you see. Are you going yourself? Well, no. In point of fact, I have to go down to the County Clare on some private business. You see, the idea is to tour the chief towns. What you lose on one, you can make up on the other. Uh, quite so. Mary Anderson is up there now. Have you good artists? Louis Werner is touring her. Uh, oh, yes, we'll have all top nobbers, J.C. Doyle and John McCormick, I hope, and the best, in fact. And Madame... Mr. Power said, smiling. Uh, last but not least. Mr. Bloom unclasped his hands in a gesture of soft politeness and clasped them. Smith O'Brien. Someone has laid a bunch of flowers there. Woman. Must be his death day. For many happy returns. The carriage wheeling by Farrell's statue united noiselessly their unresisting knees. A dull-garbed old man from the curbstone tendered his wares, his mouth opening. wonder why he was struck off the rolls. Had his office in Hume Street. Same house as Molly's namesake. Tweedy, crown solicitor for Waterford. Has that silk hat ever since. Relics of old decency. Morning, too. Terrible come down, poor wretch. Kicked about like snuffer to wake. Oh, Callaghan on his last legs. And, madame. Twenty past eleven. Up. Mrs. Fleming is in to clean. Doing her hair, humming... Volio e non vorre. No, vorre e non. Looking at the tips of her hairs to see if they are split. Mi trema un poco il. Beautiful on that tray, her voice is. Weeping tone, a thrush, a throstle. There is a word, throstle, that expressed that. His eyes passed lightly over Mr. Power's good-looking face. Greyish, over the ears. Madame. Smiling. I smiled back. A smile goes a long way. Only politeness, perhaps. Nice fellow. Who knows is that true about the woman he keeps? 
Not pleasant for the wife. Yet they say, who was it told me? There is no carnal. You would imagine that would get played out pretty quick. Yes, it was Crofton met him one evening, bringing her a pound of rump steak. What is this she was? Barmaid in juries, or the Moira, was it? They passed under the huge cloaked liberator's form. Martin Cunningham nudged Mr. Power. Of the tribe of Reuben, he said. A tall, black-bearded figure, bent on a stick, stumping round the corner of Elvery's elephant house, showed them a curved hand open on his spine. In all his pristine beauty, Mr. Power said. Mr. Dedalus looked after the stumping figure and said mildly, The devil break the hasp of your back. <laughs> Mr. Power, collapsing in laughter, shaded his face from the window as the carriage passed Gray's statue. We have all been there, Martin Cunningham said broadly. His eyes met Mr. Bloom's eyes. He caressed his beard, adding, Well, nearly all of us. Mr. Bloom began to speak with sudden eagerness to his companions' faces. That's an awfully good one that's going the rounds about Reuben J. and the son. About the boat, man. Yes, isn't it awfully good? What is that? I didn't hear it. There was a girl in the case, and he determined to send him to the Isle of Man out of harm's way. But when they were both... What? That confirmed bloody hobbled the high, is it? Yes, they were both on the way to the boat, and he tried to drown. Drown, Barabbas. I wish to... Christ, he did. <laughs> Mr. Power sent a long laugh down his shaded nostrils. No, the son himself. Martin Cunningham thwarted his speech rudely. Reuben Jay and the son were piking it down the quay next to the river on their way to the Isle of Man boat, and the young chiseler suddenly got loose and over the wall with him into the liffy. For God's sake, is he dead? Dead? Not he. A boatman got a pole and fished him out by the slack of the bridges, and he was landed up to the father on the quay, more dead than alive. Half the town was there. Yes, but the funny part is... And Reuben Jay gave the boatman a florin for saving his son's life. <laughs> a stifled sigh came from under Mr. Power's hand. Oh, he did, like a hero, a silver florin. Isn't it awfully good? One and eightpence too much, Mr. Dedalus said dryly. <laughs> Mr. Power's choked laugh burst quietly in the carriage. Nelson's pillar. Oh, we had better look a little serious, Martin Cunningham said. Mr. Dedalus sighed. And then, indeed, poor little Paddy wouldn't grudge us a laugh. Many a good one, he told himself. The Lord forgive me, Mr. Power said, wiping his wet eyes with his fingers. Poor Paddy. I little thought a week ago, when I saw him last, and he was in his usual health, that I'd be driving after him like this. He's gone from us. As decent a little man as ever wore a hat. He went very suddenly. Break down. Hat. He tapped his chest sadly. Blazing face, red hot. Too much John Barleycorn. Cure for a red nose. Drink like the devil till it turns Adelaide. A lot of money he spent colouring it. Mr. Power gazed at the passing houses with rueful apprehension. He had a sudden death, poor fellow. The best death, Mr. Bloom said. Their wide-open eyes looked at him. No suffering, a moment and all is over. Like dying in sleep. No one spoke. Dead side of the street, this. Dull business by day, land agents, temperance hotel, Falconer's railway guide, civil service college, guilds, Catholic club, the industrious blind. Why? Some reason, sun or wind, at night too, chummies and slavies under the patronage of the late Father Matthew. Foundation stone for Parnell. Breakdown. Heart. White horses with white frontlet plumes came round the rotunda corner, galloping. A tiny coffin flashed by. 
In a hurry to bury. A mourning coach. Unmarried. Black for the married. Piebald for bachelors. Done for a nun. Sad. A child. A dwarf's face, mauve and wrinkled, like little Rudy's was. Dwarf's body, weak as putty. In a white-lined deal box. Burial-friendly society pays. Penny a week for a sod of turf. Our little beggar baby. Meant nothing, mistake of nature. If it's healthy, it's from the mother, if not the man. Better luck next time. Poor little thing. It's well out of it. The carriage climbed more slowly the hill of Rutland Square. Rattle his bones over the stones, only a pauper nobody owns. In the midst of life. But the worst of all is the man who takes his own life. Martin Cunningham drew out his watch briskly, (coughs) coughed and put it back. The greatest disgrace to have in the family, Mr Power added. Temporary insanity, of course, Martin Cunningham said decisively. We must take a charitable view of it. They say a man who does it is a coward, Mr Dedalus said. It's not for us to judge, Martin Cunningham said. Mr Bloom, about to speak, closed his lips again. Martin Cunningham's large eyes, looking away now. Sympathetic human man he is. Intelligent. Like Shakespeare's face. Always a good word to say. They have no mercy on that here, or infanticide. Refused Christian burial. They used to drive a stake of wood through his heart in the grave. As if it wasn't broken already. Yet sometimes they repent too late. Found in the riverbed, clutching rushes. He looked at me. And that awful drunkard of a wife of his... Setting up house for her time after time and then pawning the furniture on him every Saturday almost. Leading him the life of the damned. Wear the heart out of a stone that Monday morning start afresh, shoulder to the wheel. Lord, she must have looked a sight that night. Dedalus told me he was in there, drunk about the place and capering with Martin's umbrella. And they call me the jewel of Asia, of Asia, the geisha. He looked away from me. He knows. Rattle his bones. That afternoon of the inquest, the red-labelled bottle on the table, the room in the hotel with hunting pictures, stuffy it was, sunlight through the slats of the Venetian blinds, the coroner's ears, big and hairy, boots giving evidence, thought he was asleep first, then saw like yellow streaks on his face. It slipped down to the foot of the bed. Verdict. Overdose. Death by misadventure. The letter for my son Leopold. No more pain. Wake no more. Nobody owns. The carriage rattles swiftly along Blessington Street. Over the stones. We are going the pace, I think, Martin Cunningham said. God grant he doesn't upset us on the road, Mr Power said. I hope not. That'll be a great race tomorrow in Germany, the Gordon Bennett. Yes, by Joe, Mr. Dedalus said. That will be what's seeing, Faith. As they turned into Berkeley Street, a street organ near the basin sent over and after them a rollicking, rattling song of the halls. Has anybody here seen Kelly? K-E-L-L-Y. Dead march from Saul. He's as bad as old. Antonio, he left me on my own EO. Pirouette. The Mater Misericordiae. Eccles Street, my house down there. Big place. 
ward for incurables there. Very encouraging. Our Lady's Hospice for the Dying. Dead house handy underneath, where old Mrs. Reardon died. They look terrible, the women. A feeding cup and rubbing her mouth with the spoon. Then the screen round her bed for her to die. Nice young student that was, dressed that bite the bee gave me. He's gone over to the lying-in hospital, they told me. From one extreme to the other. The carriage galloped round the corner. Stopped. What's wrong now? A divided drove of branded cattle passed the windows, lowing, slouching by on padded hoofs, whisking their tails slowly on the clotted, bony croups. Outside them and through them ran rattle sheep bleating their fear. Emigrants, Mr. Power said. The drover's voice cried, his switch sounding on their flanks. Thursday, of course. Tomorrow is killing day. Springers. Cough sold them, about 27 quid each. For Liverpool, probably. Roast beef for old England. They buy up all the juicy ones. And then the fifth quarter is lost. All that raw stuff, hide, hair, horns, comes to a big thing in a year. Dead meat trade. Byproduct of the slaughterhouses for tanneries, soap, margarine. Wonder if that dodge works now, getting dicky meat off the train at Clonsilla. The carriage moved on through the drove. I can't make out why the corporation doesn't run a tram line from the park gate to the quays. All those animals could be taken in trucks down to the boats. Instead of blocking up the thoroughfare, quite right, they ought to. Yes, and another thing I often thought is to have municipal funeral trams like they have in Milan, you know. Run the line out to the cemetery gates and have special trams, hearse and carriage and all. Don't you see what I mean? Oh, that'd be damned for a story. Mr. Dedler said. Pullman car, saloon, dining room. A poor lookout for Carney. Mr. Powell added. Why? Mr. Bloom asked, turning to Mr. Dedalus. Wouldn't it be more decent than galloping to a breast? Well, there's something in that. Mr. Dedalus grunted. And we wouldn't have scenes like that when the hairs capsized on Dumphy's and upset the coffin onto the road. That was terrible. Mr. Powell's shocked face said. And the corpse fell about the road. Terrible. First round, Dunphy's. Mr. Dedalus said, nodding. Gordon Bennett Cup. Praises be to God. Martin Cunningham said piously. Boom! Upset. A coffin bumped out onto the road, burst open. Paddy Dignam shot out and rolling over stiff in the dust in a brown habit too large for him. Red face. Grey now. Mouth fallen open, asking, what's up now? Quite right to close it. Looks horrid open. Then the insides decompose quickly. Much better to close up all the orifices. Yes, also with wax. The sphincter loose. Seal up all. Dunphy's, Mr. Power announced, as the carriage turned right. Dunphy's corner. Morning coaches, drawn up, drowning their grief. A pause by the wayside. Tip-top position for a pub. Expect we'll pull up here. On the way back to drink his health. Pass round the consolation. Elixir of life. But suppose now it did happen. Would he bleed if a nail, say, cut him in the knocking about? He wouldn't, he wouldn't, I suppose. Depends on where. The circulation stops. Still, some might ooze out of an artery. It'll be better to bury them in red, a dark red. In silence, they drove along Fibsborough Road. An empty hearse trotted by, coming from the cemetery. Looks relieved. Cross Guns Bridge. The Royal Canal. Water rushed roaring through the sluices. A man stood on his dropping barge between clamps of turf. On the towpath by the lock, a slack-tethered horse. Aboard of the bugaboo. 
Their eyes watched him. On the slow, weedy waterway he had floated on his raft, coastward over Ireland, drawn by a haulage rope past beds of reeds, over slime, mud-choked bottles, carrion dogs. Athlone, Mullingar, Moy Valley. I could make a walking tour to see Millie by the canal, or cycle down, hire some old crock, safety. Wren had one the other day at the auction, but a lady's. Developing waterways. James McCann's hobby to Romeo the ferry. Cheaper transit. By easy stages. Houseboats. Camping out. Also hearses to heaven by water. Perhaps I will without writing. Come as a surprise. Lee Slip, Clonsilla. Dropping down lock by lock to Dublin with turf from the Midland bogs. Salute. He lifted his brown straw hat, saluting Paddy Dignam. They drove on past Brian Baru House. Near it now. I wonder how is our friend Fogarty getting on? Better ask Tom Kernan. <laughs> how is that? Left him weeping, I suppose. <laughs> Though lost to sight, to memory, dear. The carriage steered left for Fingless Road. The stonecutter's yard on the right, last lap. Crowded on the spit of land, silent shapes appeared, white, sorrowful, Holding out calm hands, knelt in grief, pointing. Fragments of shapes hewn, in white silence appealing. The best obtainable, Thomas H. Denany, monumental builder and sculptor. Past. On the curbstone before Jimmy Geary, the sextons, an old tramp sat, grumbling, emptying the dirt and stones out of his huge, dust-brown, yawning boot. After life's journey. Gloomy gardens then went by, one by one, Gloomy houses. Mr. Powell pointed. That is where Childs was murdered. The last house. So it is, Mr. Dedler said. A gruesome case. The same old bush got him off. Murdered his brother, or so they said. The Crown had no evidence. Only circumstantial. That's the maxim of the law. Better for 99 guilty to escape than for one innocent person to be wrongfully condemned. They looked. Murderer's ground. It passed darkly. Shuttered, tenantless, unweeded garden. Whole place gone to hell. Wrongfully condemned. Murder. The murderer's image in the eye of the murdered. They love reading about it. Man's head found in a garden. Her clothing consisted of... How she met her death. Recent outrage. The weapon used. Murderer still at large. Clues, a shoelace. The body to be exhumed. Murder will out. Cramped in this carriage... She mightn't like me to come that way without letting her know. Must be careful about women. Catch them once with their pants down. Never forgive you after. Fifteen. The high railings of prospects ripple past their gaze. Dark poplars, rare white forms. Forms more frequent. White shapes thronged amid the trees. White forms and fragments streaming by mutely, sustaining vain gestures on the air. The filly harshed against the curbstone. Stopped. Martin Cunningham put out his arm and, wrenching back the handle, shoved the door open with his knee. He stepped out. Mr. Power and Mr. Dedalus followed. Change that soap now. Mr. Bloom's hand unbuttoned his hip pocket swiftly and transferred the paper-stuck soap to his inner handkerchief pocket. He stepped out of the carriage, replacing the newspaper his other hand still held. Paltry funeral. Coach and three carriages. It's all the same. Pallbearers, gold reins, requiem mass, firing a volley, pomp of death. 
Beyond the hind carriage, a hawker stood by his barrow of cakes and fruit. Simnel cakes those are, stuck together. Cakes for the dead. Dog biscuits. Who ate them? Mourners coming out. He followed his companions. Mr. Kernan and Ned Lambert followed, Hines walking after them. Corney Kelleher stood by the opened hearse and took out the two wreaths. He handed one to the boy. Where is that child's funeral disappeared to? A team of horses passed from Fingless with toiling, plodding tread, dragging through the funereal silence a creaking wagon on which lay a granite block. The wagoner marching at their heads saluted. Coffin now. Got here before us, dead as he is. Horse looking round at it with his plume skewways. Dull eye. Collar. Tight on his neck. Pressing on a blood vessel or something. Do they know what they cart out here every day? Must be twenty or thirty funerals every day. Then Mount Jerome for the Protestants. Funerals all over the world, everywhere, every minute. Shoveling them under by the cartload, double quick. Thousands every hour. Too many in the world. Mourners came out through the gates. Woman and a girl. Lean-jawed harpy, hard woman at a bargain. Her bonnet awry. Girl's face stained with dirt and tears, holding the woman's arm, looking up at her for a sign to cry. Fish's face, bloodless and livid. The mutes shouldered the coffin and bore it in through the gates. So much dead weight. Felt heavier myself stepping out of that bath. First the stiff, then the friends of the stiff. Corny Kelleher and the boy followed with their reeds. Who is that beside them? Ah, the brother-in-law. All walked after. Martin Cunningham whispered. I was in mortal agony with you talking of suicide before Bloom. What? Mr. Power whispered. How so? His father poisoned himself. Had the Queen's Hotel in Ennis. You heard him say he was going to Clare. Anniversary. Oh, God. First I heard of it. Poisoned himself. He glanced behind him to where a face with dark, thinking eyes followed towards the Cardinal's mausoleum. Speaking. Was he insured? Mr. Bloom asked. I believe so. Mr. Kern answered. But the policy was heavily mortgaged. Martin is trying to get the youngster into our town. How many children did he leave? Five. Ned Lambert says he'll try to get one of the girdles into Todd's. A sad case. Mr. Bloom said gently. Five young children. A great blow to the poor wife. Mr. Kernan added. Indeed, yes. Mr. Bloom agreed. Has the laugh at him now? He looked down at the boots he had blacked and polished. She had outlived him, lost her husband. More dead for her than for me. One must outlive the other, wise men say. There are more women than men in the world. Condole with her, your terrible loss. I hope you'll soon follow him. For Hindu widows only. She would marry another. Him? No. Yet who knows after? Widowhood, not the thing since the old queen died. Drawn on a gun carriage. Victoria and Albert, Frogmore Memorial Morning. But in the end she put a few violets in her bonnet, vain in her heart of hearts. All for a shadow. Consort, not even a king. Her son was the substance. Something new to hope for. Not like the past she wanted back, waiting. It never comes. One must go first, alone under the ground, and lie no more in her warm bed. How are you, Simon? Ned Lambert said softly, clasping hands. Haven't seen you for a month of Sundays. Never better. How are all in Cork's own town? I was down there for the Cork Park races on Easter Monday. 
Same old six and eightpence. Stuffed with Dick Tivy. And how is Dick, the solid man? Nothing between himself and heaven, Ned Lambert answered. By the holy Paul. Mr. Dedalus said in subdued wonder. Dick Tivy bald. Martin is going to get up a whip for the youngsters, uh, Ned Lambert said, pointing ahead. A few bob a skull, just to keep them going till the insurance is cleared up. Yes, yes, mm, Mr. Dedalus said dubiously. Is that the eldest boy in front? Yes, with the wife's brother. John Henry Menton is behind. He put down his name for a quid. I'll engage he did. I often told poor Paddy he ought to mind that job. John Henry's not the worst in the world. How did he lose it? Liquor what? Many a good man's fault, Mr Dedalus said with a sigh. They halted about the door of the mortuary chapel. Mr Bloom stood behind the boy with the wreath, looking down at his sleek combed hair and the slender furrowed neck inside his brand new collar. Poor boy. Was he there when the father, both unconscious, lighten up at the last moment and recognise for the last time all he might have done? I owe three shillings to O'Grady. Would he understand? The mute spore the coffin into the chapel. Which end is his head? After a moment he followed the others in, blinking in the screened light. The coffin lay on its bier before the chancel, four tall yellow candles at its corners. Always in front of us. Corny Kelleher, laying a wreath at each four corner, beckoned to the boy to kneel. The mourners knelt here and there in praying desks. Mr. Bloom stood behind near the font, and when all had knelt, dropped carefully his unfolded newspaper from his pocket and knelt his right knee upon it. He fitted his black hat gently on his left knee and, holding its brim, bent over piously. A server bearing a brass bucket with something in it came out through a door. A white-smocked priest came after him, tidying his stole with one hand, balancing with the other a little book against his toad's belly. Who'll read the book? I said the rook. They halted by the beer, and the priest began to read out of his book with a fluent croak. Father Coffey. I knew his name was like a coffin. Bully about the muzzle he looks. Bosses the show. Muscular Christian. Woe betide anyone that looks crooked at him. Priest, thou art Peter. Burst sideways like a sheep in clover, Dedalus says he will, with a belly on him like a poisoned pup. Most amusing expressions that man finds. <laughs> Burst sideways. Makes them feel more important to be prayed over in Latin. Requiem mass, crepe weepers, black-edged notepaper, your name on the altar list. Chilly place, this. Want to feed well, sitting in there all the morning in the gloom, kicking his heels, waiting for the next, please. Eyes of a toad, too. What swells him up that way? Molly gets swelled after cabbage. Air of the place, maybe. Looks full up of bad gas. Must be an infernal lot of bad gas round the place. Butchers, for instance. They get like raw beefsteaks. Who was telling me? Mervyn Brown, down in the vaults of St. Werburgh's. Lovely old organ, 150. They have to bore a hole in the coffin sometimes to let out the bad gas and burn it. Out it rushes. Blue. One whiff of that, you're a goner. My kneecap is hurting me. Oh, that's better. The priest took a stick with a knob at the end of it out of the boy's bucket and shook it over the coffin. Then he walked to the other end and shook it again. Then he came back and put it back in the bucket. As you were before you rested. It's all written down. He has to do it. The server piped the answers in the treble. I often thought it would be better to have boy servants. Up to fifteen or so. After that, of course. 
Holy water that was, I expect. Shaking sleep out of it. He must be fed up with that job, shaking that thing over all the corpses they trot up. What harm if he could see what he was shaking it over? Every mortal day a fresh batch. Middle-aged men, old women, children, women dead in childbirth, men with beards, bald-headed businessmen, consumptive girls with little sparrows' breasts. All the year round he prayed the same thing over them all and shook water on top of them. Sleep. All on dignum now. Said he was going to paradise, or is in paradise. Says that over everybody. Tiresome kind of a job, but he has to say something. The priest closed his book and went off, followed by the server. Corny Kelleher opened the side doors and the gravediggers came in, hoisted the coffin again and carried it out and shoved it on their cart. Corny Kelleher gave one wreath to the boy and one to the brother-in-law. All followed them out of the side doors into the mild grey air. Mr Bloom came last, folding his paper again into his pocket. He gazed gravely at the ground till the coffin cart wheeled off to the left. The metal wheels ground the gravel with a sharp, grating cry, and the pack of blunt boots followed the barrel along a lane of sepulchres. The ree, the ra, the ree, the ra, the roo. Lord, I mustn't lilt here. The O'Connell Circle, Mr. Dedalus said about him. Mr. Power's soft eyes went up to the apex of the lofty cone. He's at rest in the middle of his people, old Dano. But his heart is buried in Rome. How many broken hearts are buried here, Simon? Her grave is over there, Jack, Mr. Dedalus said. I'll soon be stretched beside her. Let him take me whenever he likes. Breaking down, he began to weep to himself quietly, stumbling a little in his walk. Mr. Power took his arm. She's better where she is, he said kindly. I suppose so, Mr. Dedalus said with a weak gasp. I suppose she is in heaven, if there is a heaven. Corny Kelleher stepped aside from his rank and allowed the mourners to plod by. Sad occasions. Mr. Kernan began politely. Mr. Bloom closed his eyes and sadly twice bowed his head. The others are putting on their hats, Mr. Kernan said. I suppose we can do so too. We're the last. This cemetery is a treacherous place. They covered their heads. The reverend gentleman read the service too quickly, don't you think? Mr. Kernan said with reproof. Mr. Bloom nodded gravely, looking in the quick, bloodshot eyes. Secret eyes, secret searching eyes. Mason, I think, not sure. Beside him again. We're the last in the same boat. Hope he'll say something else. Mr. Kernan added, The service of the Irish church used in Mount Jerome is simpler, more impressive, I must say. Mr. Bloom gave prudent assent. The language, of course, was another thing. Mr. Kernan said with solemnity, I am the resurrection and the life. That touches a man's inmost heart. It does, Mr. Bloom said. Your heart, perhaps. But what price the fellow in the six feet by two with his toes to the daisies? No touching that. Seat of the affections. Broken heart. A pump, after all, pumping thousands of gallons of blood every day. One fine day it gets bunged up and there you are. Lots of them lying around here. Lungs, hearts, livers. Old rusty pumps, damn the thing else. The resurrection and the life. Once you are dead, you are dead. That last day idea, knocking them all up out of their graves. Come forth, Lazarus. And he came fifth and lost the job. Get up, last day. And every fellow mousing around for his liver and his lights and the rest of his traps. Find damn all of himself that morning. Pennyweight of powder in a skull. 
Twelve grams, one pennyweight. Troy measure. Corny Kelleher fell into step at their side. Everything went off, A1. What? He looked on them from his drawling eye. Policeman's shoulders with your tour-a-loom, tour-a-loom. As it should be, Mr. Kernan said. What, eh? Corny Kelleher said. Mr. Kernan assured him. Who is that chap behind with Tom Kernan? John Henry Minton asked. I know his face. Ned Lambert glanced back. Bloom, he said. Madame Marion Tweedy, that was, is, I mean, the soprano. She's his wife. Oh, to be sure. John Henry Minton said. I haven't seen her for some time. She was a fine-looking woman. I danced with her, wait, 15, 17 golden years ago at Matt Dillon's in Roundtown. And a good armful she was. He looked behind through the others. What is he? He asked. What does he do? Wasn't he in the stationary line? I fell foul of him one evening, I remember, at Bowles. Ned Lambert smiled. Yes, he was, he said. In Wisdom Healy's, a traveller for blotting paper. In God's name, John Henry Minton said. What did she marry a coon like that for? She had plenty of game in her then. Has still, Ned Lambert said. He does some canvassing for ads. John Henry Minton's large eyes stared ahead. The barrel turned into a side lane. A portly man, ambushed among the grasses, raised his hat in homage. The gravediggers touched their caps. John O'Connell, Mr. Power said, pleased. He never forgets a friend. Mr. O'Connell shook all their hands in silence. Mr. Dedalus said, I am come to pay you another visit. My dear Simon, the caretaker answered in a low voice. I don't want your custom at all. Saluting Ned Lambert and John Henry Menton, he walked on at Martin Cunningham's side, puzzling two keys at his back. Did you hear that one? He asked them. About Mulcahy from the coom. I did not, Martin Cunningham said. They bent their silk hats in concert, and Hines inclined his ear. The caretaker hung his thumbs in the loops of his gold watch chain and spoke in a discreet tone to their vacant smiles. They tell the story, he said. The two drunks came out here one foggy evening to look for the grave of a friend of theirs. They asked for Mulcahy from the coom, and were told where he was buried. After traipsing about in the fog, they found the grave sure enough. One of the drunks spelt out the name Terence Mulcahy. The other drunk was blinking up at a statue of our saviour the widow had got put up. The caretaker blinked up at one of the sepulchres they passed. He resumed. And, after blinking up at the sacred figure... Not a bloody bit like the man, says he. That's not Mulcahy, says he. Whoever done it. Rewarded by smiles, he fell back and spoke with Corny Kelleher, accepting the dockets given them, turning them over and scanning them as he walked. That's all done with a porpoise, Martin Cunningham explained to Hines. I know. Hines said. I know that. To cheer a fellow up, Martin Cunningham said. It's pure good-heartedness, damned a thing else. Mr. Bloom admired the caretaker's prosperous bulk. All want to be on good terms with him. Decent fellow, John O'Connell, real good sort. Keys. Like Keys had. No fear of anyone getting out, no pass-out checks. Habiat corpus. I must see about that ad after the funeral. Did I write Ball's Bridge on the envelope I took to cover when she disturbed me writing to Martha? Hope it's not chucked in the dead-letter office. Be the better of a shave. Grey sprouting beard. That's the first sign when the hairs come out grey and temper getting cross. Silver threads among the grey. Fancy being his wife. 
Wonder how he had the gumption to propose to any girl. Come out and live in the graveyard. Dangle that before her. It might thrill her first. Courting death. Shades of night hovering here, with all the dead stretched about. The shadows of the tombs when churchyards yawn, and Daniel O'Connell must be a descendant, I suppose. Who is this used to say he was a queer, breedy man, great Catholic all the same, like a big giant in the dark? Will-o'-the-wisp. Gas of graves. Want to keep her mind off her to conceive at all. Women especially are so touchy. Tell her a ghost story in bed to make her sleep. Have you ever seen a ghost? Well, I have. It was a pitch-dark night. The clock was on the stroke of twelve. Still, they'd kiss all right if properly keyed up. Whores in Turkish graveyards. Learn anything if taken young. You might pick up a young widow here. Men like that. Love among the tombstones. Romeo, spice of pleasure. In the midst of death we are in life. Both ends meet. Tantalizing for the poor dead. Smell of grilled beefsteaks to the starving, gnawing their vitals. Desire to Greek people. Molly wanting to do it at the window. Eight children he has anyway. He's seen a fair share go under in his time. Lying around him, field after field. Holy fields. More room if they buried them standing. Sitting or kneeling you couldn't. Standing. His head might come up some day above the ground. In a landslip with his hand pointing. All honeycombed the ground must be. Oblong cells. And very neat he keeps it too. Trim grass and edgings. His garden, Major Gamble calls Mount Jerome. Well, so it is. Ought to be flowers of sleep. Chinese cemeteries with giant poppies growing produce the best opium, Mastiansky told me. The botanic gardens are just over there. It's the blood sinking in the earth gives new life. Same idea. Those Jews, they said, killed a Christian boy. Every man his price. Well-preserved fat corpse, gentlemen, epicure, invaluable for fruit garden, a bargain, by carcass of William Wilkinson, auditor and accountant, lately deceased, three pounds thirteen and six, with thanks. I dare say the soil would be quite fat with corpse manure, bones, flesh, nails, charnel houses. Dreadful, turning green and pink, decomposing, rot quick in damp earth, the lean old ones, tougher, then a kind of tallowy, kind of cheesy, then begin to get black, treacle oozing out of them, then dried up, death moths. Of course the cells of whatever they are, are go on living, changing about, live forever practically. Nothing to feed on, feed on themselves. But they must breed a devil of a lot of maggots. Soil must be simply swirling with them. Your head, it simply swirls, those pretty little seaside girls... He looks cheerful enough over it. Gives him a sense of power, seeing all the others go under first. Wonder how he looks at life. Cracking his jokes, too, warms the cockles of his heart. The one about the bulletin. Spurgeon went to heaven, 4 a.m. this morning. 11 p.m., closing time, not arrived yet. Peter. The dead themselves, the men, anyhow, would like to hear an odd joke, or the women to know what's in fashion. A juicy pear or lady's punch, hot, strong and sweet, keep out the damp. You must laugh sometimes, so better do it that way. Grave diggers in Hamlet shows the profound knowledge of the human heart. Daren't joke about the dead for two years at least. De mortuis nil nisi prius. Go out of mourning first. Hard to imagine his funeral. Seems a sort of a joke. 
Read your own obituary notice, they say. You live longer. Gives you a second wind. New lease of life. How many have you for tomorrow? The caretaker asked. Two. Corny Kelleher said. Half ten and eleven. The caretaker put the papers in his pocket. The barrow had ceased to trundle. The mourners split and moved to each side of the hole, stepping with care round the graves. The gravediggers bore the coffin and set its nose on the brink, looping the bands round it. Burying him, we come to bury Caesar. His Ides of March or June, he doesn't know who is here or care. Now, who is that lanky-looking galoot over there in the Macintosh? Now, who is he, I'd like to know? Now I'd give a trifle to know who he is. Always someone turns up you never dreamt of. A fellow could live on his lonesome all his life. Yes, he could. Still, he'd have to get someone to sod him after he died. Though he could dig his own grave. We all do. Only man buries. No, ants, too. First thing strikes anybody. Bury the dead. Say Robinson Crusoe was true to life. Well, then, Friday buried him. Every Friday buries a Thursday, if you come to look at it. Oh, poor Robinson Crusoe, how could you possibly do so? Poor Dignam, his last lie on the earth in his box. When you think of them all, it does seem a waste of wood, all gnawed through. They could invent a handsome beer with a kind of panel sliding, let it down that way. Aye, but they might object to be buried out of another fellow's. They're so particular, lay me in my native earth, bit of clay from the Holy Land. Only a mother and dead-born child ever buried in the one coffin. I see what it means, I see, to protect him as long as possible, even in the earth. The Irishman's house is his coffin. Embalming in catacombs, mummies, the same idea. Mr. Bloom stood far back, his hat in his hand, counting the bared heads. Twelve. I'm thirteen. No, the chap in the Macintosh is thirteen. Death's number. Where the deuce did he pop out of? He wasn't in the chapel that elsewhere. Silly superstition, that about thirteen. Nice soft tweed Ned Lambert has in that suit. Tinge of purple. I had one like that when we lived in Lombard Street West. Dressy fellow he was once. Used to change three suits in the day. Must get that grey suit of mine turned by Messiers. Hello. It's died. His wife. I forgot he's not married. Or his landlady ought to have picked out those threads for him. The coffin dived out of sight, eased down by the men straddled on the grave trestles. They struggled up and out, and all uncovered. Twenty. Pause. If we were all suddenly somebody else... Far away, a donkey brayed. Rain. No such ass. Never see a dead one, they say. Shame of death, they hide. Also, poor Papa went away. Gentle, sweet air blew round the bared heads in a whisper. Whisper. The boy by the gravehead held his wreath with both hands, staring quietly in the black open space. Mr. Bloom moved behind the portly, kindly caretaker. Well-cut frock coat. Weighing them up, perhaps, to see which will go next. Well, it is a long rest. Feel no more. It's the moment you feel. Must be damned unpleasant. Can't believe it at first. Mistake must be. Someone else. Try the house opposite. Wait. I wanted to. I haven't yet. Then, darkened death chamber. Light they want, whispering around you. Would you like to see a priest? 
Then, rambling and wandering, delirium all you hid all your life. The death struggle. His sleep is not natural. Press his lower eyelid. Watching as his nose pointed, as his jaw sinking, are the soles of his feet yellow. Pull the pillow away and finish it off on the floor since he's doomed. Devil in that picture of sinner's death showing him a woman dying to embrace her in his shirt. Last act of Lucia, shall I never more behold thee? Bam! Expires. Gone at last. People talk about you a bit. Forget you. Don't forget to pray for him. Remember him in your prayers. Even Parnell. Ivy Day dying out. Then they follow, dropping into a hole one after the other. We are praying now for the repose of his soul, hoping you're well and not in hell. Nice change of air out of the frying pan of life into the fire of purgatory. Does he ever think of the hole waiting for himself? They say you do when you shiver in the sun, someone walking over it, call boys warning, near you. Mine, over there towards Finglas, the plot I bought. Mama, poor Mama and little Rudy. The grave diggers took up their spades and flung heavy clods of clay in on the coffin. Mr. Bloom turned his face. And if he was alive all the time, who by Jingo, that would be awful. No, no, he is dead, of course. Of course he is dead. Monday he died. They ought to have some law to pierce the heart and make sure, or an electric clock or a telephone in the coffin and some kind of a canvas air hole, flag of distress. Three days. Rather long to keep them in summer. Just as well to get shot of them, as soon as you're sure there's no... The clay fell softer. Begin to be forgotten. Out of sight, out of mind. The caretaker moved away a few paces and put on his hat. Had enough of it. The mourners took heart of grace, one by one, covering themselves without show. Mr. Bloom put on his hat and saw the portly figure make its way deftly through the maze of graves. Quietly, sure of his ground, he traversed the dismal fields. Hines, jotting down something in his notebook. Ah, the names. But he knows them all. No, coming to me. I'm just taking the names. Hines said below his breath. What's your Christian name? I'm not sure. L. Leopold. And you might put down McCoy's name, too. He asked me to. Charlie. Hines said, writing. I know. He was on the Freeman once. So he was before he got the job in the morgue under Louis Byrne. Good idea. A post-mortem for doctors. Find out what they imagine they know. He died of a Tuesday. Got the run. Levanted with the cash of a few ads. Charlie, you're me darling. That was why he asked me to. Oh, well, does no harm. I saw to that, McCoy. Thanks, old chap. Much obliged. Leave him under an obligation. Costs nothing. And tell us... Hines said. Do you know that fellow in the... Fellow was over there in the... He looked around. Macintosh? Yes, I saw him. Mr. Bloom said. Where is he now? Macintosh. Hines said, scribbling. I don't know who he is. Is that his name? He moved away, looking about him. No! Mr. Bloom began, turning and stopping. I say, Hines! Didn't hear. What? Where does he disappear to? Not a sign. Well, of all the... Has anybody here seen? K-E-double-L. Become invisible. Good Lord, what became of him? A seventh grave digger came beside Mr. Bloom to take up an idle spade. Oh, excuse me. He stepped aside nimbly. Clay, brown, damp began to be seen in the hole. It rose. Nearly over. A mound of damp clods rose more. Rose and the gravediggers rested their spades. 
all uncovered again for a few instants. The boy propped his wreath against a corner, the brother-in-law his on the lump. The grave diggers put on their caps and carried their earthy spades towards the barrel, then knocked the blades lightly on the turf, clean. One bent to pluck from the haft a long tuft of grass. One leaving his mates walked slowly on with shouldered weapon, its blade blue-glancing. Silently at the gravehead another coiled a coffin band. His navel cord. The brother-in-law, turning away, placed something in his free hand. Thanks, in silence. Sorry, sir. Trouble. Head shake. I know that. For yourselves, just. The mourners moved away slowly, without aim, by devious paths, staying a while to read a name on a tomb. Let us go round by the chief's grave, Hines said. We have time. Let us, Mr. Power said. They turned to the right, following their slow thoughts. With awe, Mr. Power's blank voice spoke. Some say he's not in that grave at all, that the coffin was filled with stones, that one day he will come again. Hines shook his head. Ah, Nell will never come again. He's there, all that was mortal of him. Peace to his ashes. Mr. Bloom walked unheeded along his grove by saddened angels, crosses, broken pillars, family vaults. Stone hopes praying with upcast eyes, old Ireland's hearts and hands. More sensible to spend the money on some charity for the living. Pray for the repose of the soul of, does anybody really? Plant him and have done with him, like down a coal chute. Then lump them all together to save time, all souls day. Twenty-seventh, I'll be at his grave. Ten shillings for the gardener, he keeps it free of weeds. Old man himself... Bent down double with his shears clipping near death's door. Who passed away, who departed this life, as if they did it of their own accord. Got the shove, all of them. Who kicked the bucket? More interesting if they told you what they were. So-and-so, wheelwright. I travelled for cork lino. I paid five shillings in the pound. Or a woman's with her saucepan. I cooked good Irish stew. Eulogy in a country churchyard it ought to be, that poem of whose is it? Wordsworth or Thomas Campbell? Entered into rest, the Protestants put it. Old Dr. Morrens, the great physician, called him home. Well, it's God's acre for them. Nice country residence, newly plastered and painted. Ideal spot to have a quiet smoke and read the church times. Marriage ads they never tried to beautify. Rusty reeds hung on knobs. Garlands of bronze foil. Better value that for the money. Still, the flowers are more poetical. The other gets rather tiresome, never withering, expresses nothing. Immortel. A bird sat tamely perched on the poplar branch. Like stuffed. Like the wedding present Alderman Hooper gave us. Whew, not a budge out of him. Knows there are no catapults to let fly at him. Dead animal. Even sadder. Silly Millie burying the little dead bird in the kitchen matchbox. A daisy chain and bits of broken chain is on the grave. The sacred heart, that is. Showing it. Heart on his sleeve. Ought to be sideways and red it should be painted like a real heart. Ireland was dedicated to it, or whatever that. Seems anything but pleased. Why this infliction? Would birds come then and peck like the boy with the basket of fruit? But he said no, because they ought to have been afraid of the boy. Apollo, that was. How many... All these here once walked round Dublin. Faithful departed. 
As you are now, so once were we. Besides, how could you remember everybody? Eyes, walk, voice. Well, the voice, yes. Gramophone. Have a gramophone in every grave, or keep it in the house. After dinner on a Sunday. Put on poor old great-grandfather. Crack. Hello, hello, hello. Am awfully glad. Crack. Awfully glad to see you again. Hello, hello. Am awfully... Remind you of the voice like the photograph reminds you of the face. Otherwise you couldn't remember the face after fifteen years, say. For instance, who... For instance, some fellow that died when I was in Wisdom Healy's. A rattle of pebbles. Wait, stop. He looked down intently into a stone crypt. Some animal. Wait, there he goes. An obese grey rat toddled along the side of the crypt, moving the pebbles. An old stager, great-grandfather. He knows the ropes. The grey alive crushed itself in under the plinth, wriggled itself in under it. Good hiding place for treasure. Who lives there? I laid the remains of Robert Emery. Robert Emmett was buried here by torchlight, wasn't he? Making his rounds. Tail gone now. One of those chaps would make short work of a fellow. Picked the bones clean, no matter who it was. Ordinary meat for them. A corpse's meat gone bad. Well, and what's cheese? Corpse of milk. I read in that Voyages in China that the Chinese say a white man smells like a corpse. Cremation better. Priests dead against it, deviling for the other firm. Wholesale burners and Dutch oven dealers. Time of the plague, quicklime fever pits to eat them. Lethal chamber, ashes to ashes. Or bury at sea. Where is that Parsi Tower of Silence? Eaten by birds. Earth, fire, water. Drowning, they say, is the pleasantest. See your whole life in a flash. But being brought back to life, no. Can't bury in the air, however. Out of a flying machine. Wonder, does the news go about whenever a fresh one is let down? Underground communication. We learned that from them. Wouldn't be surprised. Regular square feed for them. Flies come before he's well dead. Got wind of Dignam. They wouldn't care about the smell of it. Salt-white, crumbling mush of corpse. Smell. Taste like raw white turnips. The gates glimmered in front. Still open. Back to the world again. Enough of this place. Brings you a bit nearer every time. Last time I was here was Mrs. Sinico's funeral. Poor Papa, too. The love that kills. And even scraping up the earth at night with a lantern, like that case I read of to get at fresh buried females, or even putrefied with running grave sores. Give you the creeps after a bit. I will appear to you after death. You will see my ghost after death. My ghost will haunt you after death. There's another world after death named hell. I do not like that other world, she wrote. No more do I. Plenty to see and hear and feel yet. Feel live, warm beings near you. Let them sleep in their maggoty beds. They're not going to get me this innings. Warm beds. Warm, full-blooded life. Martin Cunningham emerged from a side path, talking gravely. Solicitor, I think. I know his face. Menton. John Henry, solicitor, commissioner for oaths and affidavits. Dignam used to be in his office. Matt Dillon's long ago. 
jolly met, convivial evenings, cold foul cigars, the tenterless glasses. Heart of gold, really. Yes, Menton. Got his rag out that evening on the bowling green because I sailed inside him. Pure fluke of mine. The bias. Why he took such a rooted dislike to me. Hate at first sight. Molly and Floy Dillon linked under the lilac tree laughing. Fellow always like that. Mortified if women are by. Got a dinge in the side of his hat. Carriage, probably. Excuse me, sir. Mr. Bloom said beside them. They stopped. Your hat is a little crushed. Mr. Bloom said, pointing. John Henry Menton stared at him for an instant without moving. There! Martin Cunningham helped, pointing also. John Henry Menton took off his hat, bulged out the dinge, and smoothed the nap with care on his coat sleeve. He clapped the hat on his head again. It's all right now, Martin Cunningham said. John Henry Menton jerked his head down in acknowledgement. Thank you, he said shortly. They walked on towards the gates. Mr. Bloom chapfallen drew behind a few paces so as not to overhear. Martin, laying down the law. Martin could wind a seppy head like that round his little finger without his seeing it. Oyster eyes. Never mind. Be sorry after, perhaps, when it dawns on him. Get the pull over him that way. Thank you. How grand we are this morning. 